Take out your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 3, page 981. Last week we looked at verses 4 through 9, but verses 8 and 9 are so good, and I kind of tacked them onto the end there. They're just too important. So we're going to come back to verses 8 and 9, and we're going to do them again. Uh, this week our text is going to be Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. Context. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice. This whole book is about joy. And this whole passage is connected to this command to rejoice. So that's the question. That's the topic that we're dealing with. Where can you find real joy? How do you actually rejoice? Paul has given us a number of answers, all in a way summed up in that very first Verse, rejoice in the Lord. That's the only place that joy is found. Not only do we tend to look for love in all the wrong places, we tend to look for joy in all the wrong places. Paul's point here is simple, yet it's profound. Joy is found in Jesus. These verses, then, are a sort of primer on joy. First, from verse 1, we saw that we rejoice by thinking rightly about Jesus. If joy is found in him, we're going to look in more detail at that today. Uh, joy is found then in knowing him, but that must include first knowing about him. If joy is found in Jesus, we need to think rightly about Jesus, which means that doctrine is important. So we've been saying that doctrine is for joy. Which also then means, verse 2, that we rejoice by rejecting wrong thinking about Jesus. We rejoice by rejecting false doctrine or false gospels. If joy is found in Jesus, flee anything that gets Jesus wrong. And in third, verse 3, we rejoice by thinking rightly about self in Jesus. We remember who we were apart from Christ, and then we rejoice in who we now are in Christ by grace in this great gap between the two, who we were in our sin and who we are in his grace is the cause of great gratitude and great gladness. Then last week we looked at how we rejoice by putting no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in credential righteousness and all confidence in Christ and Christ's righteousness. So we rejoice in the realization that while we could do nothing to be righteous, God counts us righteous based on the finished work of Christ in our place. And we're going to touch on that again in point two. And so now this week, um, starting to get towards the end of this wonderful section, we'll finish it next week, I promise. We'll be out of one through 11. I want to try to simplify uh, things this week. Simplicity is good. Uh, rejoice. Very simple. How do you do it? You see it in verse 8. We're going to see it again next week in verse 10. You rejoice by knowing Christ. Very simple. Verse 1 was the, uh, uh, the importance of thinking rightly about Jesus. The importance of right doctrine. This week we're talking about knowing Jesus. And the two are related, though they are different. I want to talk this morning about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and Paul's singular desire and focus to know him and how my desire is that that would increasingly be my desire and your desire. It could just be me, but I assume maybe it's probably all of us. But I get so tired sometimes of how apathetic I am about the things of God. I get so tired about my lingering love for the things of the world. And when I read Paul in these verses, I see a passion and a zeal and a focus that I so often see lacking in myself and in the church at large. We are so often caught up in and obsessed with secondary things. And secondary things can be good, but only when they remain that, when they remain secondary things. But so often secondary things become primary Things. So often our life and our love become about things that they were never supposed to be about. So often the thing that we most want to know 
is comfort or ease or pleasure or entertainment or success or advancement or recognition or some relationship. And and when these are the things that we most want to know, ultimately, what we really most want to know is self. And what we most want to know is what we most love. What we most want to know is what we most love. And what we most love is what we most trust. And so the question before us this morning is, is that Christ? Do you know Christ? Do you love Christ? Do you trust Christ? That's all I want to try to look at today. First, to know Christ. And then second, to want to know Christ more. Uh, Love for Jesus is often expressed as longing to love Jesus more. I long to love Jesus more, and I long for that for you too. So that's the one thing that I hope that God would accomplish in us this morning, that by the grace of God and in the reading and preaching of his word, that the Spirit would cause us to see and know and love Christ just a little bit more. All right, so knowing Christ, that's it. That's what we're talking about. That's what these verses are about. We said last week that this passage is about righteousness, and it is, but it's about righteousness for a reason, that we may know Christ. The point of righteousness is relationship. It's the grounds for the relationship. It's not the end. Christ is the end. Christ is the point. This whole thing is ultimately about knowing Christ. So three points this morning related to knowing Christ. What really is it to know Christ? What does it look like? Well, first off, we have to see and be convinced that Christ is of surpassing worth and that knowing him is of surpassing worth. That is the first and main thing uh, from verse eight. Then second, we're going to see that knowing Christ requires the righteousness of God given by grace through faith in verse nine. And then if one and two are true, That must then mean that knowing Christ has to be our one all-consuming passion. So let's read what Paul says uh, about this. Again, the whole thing is so good and it's so connected. Let me just read the whole thing. Let me read all of 1 through 11 just to kind of situate our minds in the text. But we're going to focus on verses 8 through 9. I'll read for you Philippians 3, 1 through 11. This is what God wants to say to you today. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You would bow with me. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Speak, O Lord. Father, I pray that my words would be your word. I pray that you would show us Christ in these next few minutes. I pray that you would set aside every other distraction. I pray that you would just set aside every other care and concern. Father, set aside my care and concern to preach a good sermon, to 
establish my own credential righteousness or be impressive or witty or funny or engaging. Father, set aside every single one of our um, distractions on what's coming next or what's going wrong or what we're angry about or what it is that we're really thinking about. Father, fix our minds, all of us, on Jesus Christ now through your word. Father, do this for us, we ask. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one, knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. Straight out of verse eight, Paul says that he will happily count all things as loss because of such gain that is to be found in Christ. Because knowing this Christ is of surpassing worth. So we need to talk again what it means to know Christ. And then we need for God in the process of that to convince us that this is of surpassing worth. We've already explained that to know means much more than to know about, right? It's much more than just a bare intellectual exercise. It's much more than just knowledge. It's much more than knowing some facts about Jesus. When Paul talks about knowing Christ, he means knowing him personally and relationally. When you hear me talking about knowing Christ, I want you to just think loving Christ, I mentioned last week that Melissa and I got to go out into the city and that I ate the best burger I've ever eaten at Emily in the West Village, a little restaurant. Go get it. A few of you asked me about it afterwards. That's the thing you asked me about after the sermon. Whatever. I showed the burger to you. Uh, you now all know something about that burger, but only Melissa and I know that burger. Like, I have tasted it. I have experienced it. I know it, and I love it, and I'm saving up so I can go back and experience it again. That's the knowledge that Paul is talking about here. Have you tasted? Have you experienced? Have you known and loved Christ? That's what we're talking about. That's what it means to know him. It is to find great gladness and contentment and enjoyment of and in him. Have you ever just been glad because of his grace? Do you ever just find yourself content because of Christ? This is what it is to know him. And this is so important and worth camping on because this is the one thing that you need. This is the one thing that you were created for, which means Jesus is the one place, the one person in whom you can and will find joy. So Paul is saying rejoice and you do it by knowing Christ because he is what you were made for. We know from Genesis 1 and 2 that God created us to be with him and like him. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has, has put eternity into man's heart. It's, it's part of our design. But then a few chapters later in Ecclesiastes 9.3, it also says that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts. So there's both eternity and evil. Right? That's the condition of man. That is, that is the problem. This is the great tension. We were made for one thing, the eternity, and that's in there. Instead, we end up choosing and pursuing another thing. That's the evil. We were made to know God. Instead, we, we content ourselves with knowing that which is infinitely less than God, that which is even opposed to God. That's why we are so filled with desire. That's why we are constantly pursuing Things constantly seeking fulfillment and satisfaction and joy, but then tending to do so in the things of the world. But we need to know and be reminded that you were created to know God and find these things only in Him. Uh, there's a famous quote, a Blaise, one of the coolest first names ever, Blaise Pascal. Uh, he wrote this 350 years ago. He was a really interesting uh, character. Go, go read about him. But here's his famous quote. That he, you ever heard the quote, a God-shaped hole? People say Blaise Pascal said that. He didn't say that, but he said the thing that that comes from. Here's what he says. He says, what is this craving that we have, this helplessness? What else does it proclaim but that there was once in us a true happiness, of which all that now remains is an empty print and trace? This we try in vain to fill with everything around us, 
seeking in things that are not there the help that we cannot find in the things that are, though none of them can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. Or as Augustine so perfectly put it, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Both of these guys are recognizing and saying, along with Ecclesiastes, this eternity in your heart, along with Genesis 1 and 2 and your design, that you can only be filled by God himself, that you can only find rest in God himself. And this is what it means to know God and to know Christ who is God. It's to be filled by him. It's to be satisfied in him. It's to rest in him. And Christian, this is what this whole Thing that we're doing is about. I think we're really, really confused in many churches today, especially in America. Like, hey, what's this whole thing about? We're going to transform the culture. We're going to uh, we're going to help the oppressed, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do all of the. Here are the things that we are to be about. This is why we exist. No, but Scripture is pretty clear that this is first and foremost why we exist. It is to know God. This is the sum and substance of Christianity. Is this the sum and substance of your Christianity? These other things are fine, but they flow out of this thing. This is what this is about. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's life. We all want life. We all want eternal life. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to go to hell. Well, life is found in knowing God. Eternal life. Life is knowing God. That's why Paul could say back in 121, all his activity and all the things that he's doing and all the things that he's accomplishing, he sums it all up in 121 that to live is Christ. Life is Christ. And that's why knowing him is of surpassing value, because he's life. And so from him we get life, which is obviously of great value. But I want, to, I want us to hold that thought for a second because we need to be careful there. It's really good to want life. It's good to seek it. But there is the possibility here of a very subtle but very serious error. I'm reading a book uh, right now titled Prosperity. Uh, no, wait, no, it's titled Blessed is the name of the book. Sorry, it's Blessed and it's a history of the American prosperity gospel. It's an excellent book, though it's written by a professor from Duke. Uh, so that part's messing uh, with me. Uh, good things don't come from Duke, uh, usually. Um, but that problem aside, this lady um, identifies and accurately kind of diagnoses the problems with the prosperity gospel. And she, she identifies it with four main themes. It's, it's identified by its focus on faith, wealth, health, and victory. And then she talks about how in that movement, spiritual faith may be calculated and then demonstrated in physical wealth and health. Your material reality here is the measure of your spiritual reality. In other words, there's this great focus on what you get out of the whole deal and on blessing and on what God's going to give to you. And maybe we think that we're too mature and too godly to measure our faith with health and wealth, but... We do all have within us a tendency to focus first on what we get out of this whole deal. Which is what? What do we get out of this? Or what, what is it really that makes knowing Christ of surpassing value? Is it that we don't well, have to go to hell? Every altar call in my entire life, every sinner's prayer, right? You don't want to go to hell, raise your hand. Pray this prayer and come forward. All right, like I'm in. I don't want to do that. Um, and so I would follow suit and do these things over and over and over again. Now, surely not going to hell is a good thing. Or is the thing that we're, all these other benefits, the, the justification, the sanctification, the glorification, 
the adoption. Again, all good things, all benefits that we receive. But so often we tend to preach the benefits of Christ first without really preaching Christ. Right? We present and focus on and get really excited about the things that we get from Christ. But remember what Satan's accusation of Job was in Job chapter 1. Hey God, he doesn't really love you. He just loves what he gets from you. He just loves the blessing that you give him. He just loves the benefits. Take away the good things, take away the blessings, and he will curse you to your face. He will run from you and reject you. It's quite possible to want what Christ can give you more than to want Christ. What is this all about for me, for, for you? What are you in it for? What is gain for you? Don't miss the end of verse 8. What for Paul is gain? It is Christ himself that is gain. He's going to talk about all the good things that come from that. But his focus first and foremost is on gaining Christ. Psalm 16, which we read at the beginning of the service, David is writing. And in verse 6, he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. Well, what is that? Well, verse 2, he says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You see, for David, all of his good is wrapped up in having God. Verse 5 is even more clear. The Lord is my chosen portion. Verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, for David, it's God that is his portion, his pleasure, his inheritance. Deuteronomy 18, when the tri 12 tribes of Israel are entering, about to enter into the land, take the promised land, each tribe was to receive part of the land as their inheritance, except for one tribe. Chapter 18, verse 1, the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi shall have no inheritance with Israel, for the Lord is their inheritance. They didn't get any land. They got the Lord himself. They got God himself in a unique way. Well, who are we sitting in here, church today? 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And shortly before that, in chapter 1, verse 4, Peter talks about God causing us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Paul talks in Ephesians 1.11 about the inheritance that we have obtained in Christ. What is it? What is it that we gain? What is it that we get? Like Levi, like the priests, like David, like Paul, it is God himself. He is our inheritance. As the entire people of God, now the priests of God, the entire people of God get God. He is what we're supposed to be after. He is what the whole thing is about. And again, I know maybe all of that sounds almost so obvious that it's almost not even worth mentioning, but I caution us to think more carefully. And ask yourself the question, is it God himself that I really want? Or is it what I get from him? Is God himself the gain? Or is the gain what I get from him? Do I really want to be with God? Or do I really want to avoid pain and suffering and, and hell? Or do I want to be blessed because I am with God? Do I really love God? Or do I just know some stuff about him in hopes of my life going better? Is there in you? A hint, maybe not a roaring fire, but a, a spark, a little flame of desire, of delight, of passion, of pursuit, of, of gladness, of contentment, of joy in having and knowing and loving God. God himself is what we get. Is God himself what we want? Right? Is he enough 
for us? Is he what we most want to know? Do we see him as of surpassing value? I'm not minimizing the benefits, right? He saves us. He justifies us. He sanctifies us. Praise God. But it's just that that subtle first focus. Is it first on him? I think that's really, really important. Knowing him and knowing Christ is of surpassing value simply because of who he is. And it's just so obvious that Paul gets this. Paul met Jesus and it changed everything. And now we're, we're about 30 years later and here he is writing this letter and he's just, he's just overflowing with love and joy in Jesus while in prison. One of my favorite commentators, uh, William Hendrickson, says that verse 8 in the Greek is just almost untranslatable. It's, it's, it's as if Paul's heart is so deeply stirred that the thoughts are just kind of crowding and overwhelming his mind and the words are just compacted and compressed and he leaves some words out and he adds some in, all in just kind of this, this vain attempt to try and express in words how much he loves Jesus. And it's because of who Jesus is for Paul. Paul sees and he knows for Paul, Jesus is Messiah, Son of God, God, Word, Lord, King, Sovereign, Creator, Sustainer, Life, Lover, Wisdom, Righteousness, Boast, Confidence, Strength, Rock, Redeemer, Rewarder, Brother, Friend. And I've missed a bunch, I'm sure. The point is that for Paul, Christ is everything. He is his all in all. That is why he is of surpassing worth. And if he is, and if all of those things are of surpassing worth, then knowing him, this God who is of surpassing worth, then knowing him must be of surpassing worth. And being known by him must be of surpassing worth. It's because of who he is. And it's because of what he has done makes it all the more amazing, the combination of those two things. Paul, again, writes later in Galatians 2.20, He, this God that we just described, He loved me. And this God gave Himself up for me. Wonder of wonder, miracle of miracles. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Paul's astounded that this he loved me, and this he gave himself up for me. And so I love him and would happily and willingly give myself up for him. Paul knows that knowing Christ is of surpassing worth because Christ is of surpassing worth. And you see that really reflected in how Paul prays. We pray for what we most care about, which why we generally most pray about our own health, right? And most things going on in our lives, right? Because we tend to care most about ourselves, right? What does Paul most pray about? Our prayers reveal our priorities. Love reveals your loyalties. What do you love? What do you pray for? Listen to a couple of Paul's prayers. Listen to Ephesians 3. 17 and 9 through 19. Listen to what he prays for. He prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend, that is to know with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul knows that knowing Christ is of surpassing worth, and so he prays for that which is of surpassing worth. He prays that the knowledge of God is everything, and so he prays that you would be filled with the knowledge of God and then find your fullness in him. Paul prays for that which he knows is most important. Ephesians 1.16, just right in front of that. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, 
remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He's saying, he's saying, know this. And I'm going to pray that you would know this. Know him. Christ is of surpassing worth. And so Paul prays, and that is my prayer for me, and that is my prayer for you, and that's what I want your prayer to be for me and for this church, that we would see the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. I read a Spurgeon book uh, this week. So I've had Spurgeon on the brain uh, a whole lot. Uh, listen to this quote from Spurgeon. I'm not going to apologize for the length of the quote. I'm sorry. Uh, but it's so good. Here's why Spurgeon is the prince of preachers. Spurgeon is the prince of preachers, not as we're tempted to think, because he was so great. Uh, were I teaching a preaching class, I would specifically teach my students not to preach like Spurgeon. Like, do not preach like he preached. But Spurgeon's greatness was found in his great focus on and his great delight in the great subject and in God himself revealed most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Spurgeon says. We all want joy. Here's Spurgeon putting it as only Spurgeon can put it. He says, there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. The most excellent study, students, young people, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of God in his glorious trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of God. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go Plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of God. Oh, man, that's so... Beautiful, And we don't really believe that. He says, plunge yourself into God's deepest sea. He is saying, know him. Because Spurgeon recognizes with Paul that it is God specifically revealed through Jesus Christ that it is of surpassing worth. And so knowing him is of surpassing worth. That means superior and above and beyond everything else. Do we believe that? And do we live like that? Number two, knowing Christ requires first the righteousness of God by grace through faith. Look at verse 9. Paul wants to gain Christ that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's just the gospel in one beautiful sentence. This is the heart of everything. If Paul wants to gain Christ, and he explains that as being found in him, and he explains being found in him in terms of righteousness. And that's what we talked about in more detail last week. We won't do it in great detail uh, this week. Remember, righteous just means right or just right conduct or right behavior. And we saw that God is perfectly righteous. He always does what is right and good. And that then to be in relationship with him, you have to be righteous. Right demands right. The righteous God requires righteousness to be in right relationship with him. Problem is, as we saw, you don't have it. Romans 3.10. No one is righteous. God requires righteousness you don't have righteousness. And as we saw last week, there's nothing that you can do about it. There's nothing that you can do to earn or achieve 
righteousness. That's the point that Paul was trying to make in verses 4 through 6. He was showing us his spiritual resume. He was listing for us his qualifications, all the things that demonstrated his greatness and what he thought was his righteousness. So he called this credential righteousness, our attempts to be good enough and establish our goodness by what we do, our attempts to establish our own righteousness. But he says credential righteousness is worthless. He says it's trash. It's rubbish. We cannot earn our way to God. We are not righteous. And since we are already not righteous, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves perfectly righteous, no matter how hard we try. Everyone is telling you to be a good person and it will be good enough. Paul is telling you that he was the best person and that it wasn't close to good enough. Credential righteousness doesn't work. God is righteous. We have to be righteous to be with him. We try with credential righteousness. We fail miserably with credential righteousness, which means that we remain unrighteous, not good, evil, sinful, disqualified from God, not right with him, separated from him. So the question is, how in the world, then, can we be found in him? How in the world, then, can we ever be right with the perfectly righteous God? That's what Paul's telling us in this verse. And he is saying, not my righteousness, not the righteousness of the law, not righteousness from the flesh, but only through the righteousness of another, only through Christ's righteousness. Paul says he cannot be found in Christ with a righteousness of his own from the law. In other words, anything that he does, but only a righteousness. Prepositions are important from God, meaning a righteousness that God gives, that God gifts, that God graces to us. The good news of the gospel is that the righteous God who demands righteousness is also the gracious God who provides righteousness. You could not be righteous. So Christ came to be righteous for you. Christ came to represent you. He came to take your place. He came to provide you with his righteousness as a gift to be received, Paul says, through faith. That which comes through faith in Christ. And we know faith is simply, it's, it's belief. It's trust, or it's believing trust. It's, it's trustful belief. It is turning to Christ. It's acknowledging your own sinfulness, your own lack of righteousness, your, own, your inability to establish righteousness, and it's then coming to the place where you know that you must have Christ's righteousness. It's recognizing that there is no hope in you. And so then putting your hope fully in him. It is recognizing that your only hope for righteousness is to be found in Christ. And to be counted righteous in him. Because he came to live and to die and to rise again in your place. As a sinner, to know Christ, you have to have the righteousness of God given to you by grace through faith in Christ. Christ. Knowing him starts there. Sinful man cannot know holy God until holy God acts to justify sinful man. And he has in Christ. Which means, contrary to what everyone else is saying, you don't get to God by achieving, but simply by receiving. You don't get to God by doing, but simply by believing. Everyone else is telling you to be a good person. Only the gospel is telling you to believe in the good person. And so if you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian and you're not saved, that then means that you need to see your sin and you need to turn to him. You need to recognize and admit your spiritual bankruptcy and trust in Christ to provide for you and to fill you. You need to, what the Bible says, repent of your sin and believe in Christ. But the righteousness that you need to be right and good and with God is, comes and is found only through faith in Christ. Believe in him 
and you will gain something of surpassing worth. Yes, you'll gain life, forgiveness, heaven, fulfillment, identity, joy, but ultimately you will gain him. And you will know and be known by the one who made you. You will gain Christ who is of surpassing worth. Believe. And for the Christian here, listen, this may mean that one of the things we most need to learn to do as Christians is to repent not only of our sin. I am not minimizing that. We need to be daily repenting for our sin, but also learning to repent of your righteousness, learning to repent of your credential righteousness. You need to recognize how prone you are to wander and not just wander in the flagrant sin kind of way, but wander into trying to relate to God and rest in your own righteousness. You need to recognize your tendency to try and add something to Christ's work, to still try and do something to prove yourself, to qualify yourself, to justify yourself. Because in so doing, you are acting as if Christ's work, as if Christ's righteousness was just not quite enough. And you're saying to Jesus, thank you, but let me help. Let me add this thing. Christian, I know that I desperately need to repent of yourself, of myself Righteousness. I need to do it every single Sunday where my feeling of worth on Sunday evening or afternoon depends upon the response to the sermon. Right? How terrible is that? How much of that is that a remaining sense of my own attempts to establish my righteousness in my spiritual resume? Right? And how good I can preach a sermon. Paul says that's rubbish. That has nothing to do with my standing before the Lord. In fact, it pulls me away from him as I try to rest and trust in myself. And you have some way in which you do that. And Paul is saying here that we've got to learn to see when we do that, know what we tend to do that with, and repent even of our attempts of self-righteousness. You've got to relate to God on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. Because it's there that you will find joy. As long as you keep kind of unconsciously thinking that there is something that you need to do and you keep trying to establish your own righteousness, you will not rest and you will not rejoice. Learn to rejoice in received righteousness. We sang it in the new song Andy just introduced where sinners trade their filthy rags for his righteousness applied to us. Rags to righteousness. Death to life, all the free gift of God's good grace. So knowing Christ first requires received righteousness. And finally then, if all that is true, if knowing Christ is of infinitely surpassing worth because of the righteousness of God graciously graciously given to us through his blood, if knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection is is so worth it, um, we'll see in a minute that if we would have, or next week that we'd happily share in his sufferings. If all these things are true, then knowing Christ must be our one all-consuming passion. Look ahead just for a minute. Look at verse 11. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Any means. We'll explain what that means next week. Look at verse 12. I press on. Look at verse 13. Straining forward. Look at verse 14. I press on toward the goal. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Paul says, by any means, I press on, I strain forward. I press on. Brothers, imitate me by any means. You, press on. Straight forward, press on. I think it's probably safe to say that Paul was uh, more spiritually mature than the rest of us, I think, right? Uh, He was holier than us. Uh, Paul knew Christ better than we do. And yet, he he wants more. He, He wants to know more. For Paul, being made right with God through the gift of Christ's righteousness was not reason to then sit back and take it easy. 
No, in fact, it was the exact opposite. It was because he had tasted and seen, because he had experienced the grace of God, because he knew Christ, and he pressed on to know Christ more. He was both content in Christ and craving more of Christ. He was both satisfied in Christ and hungering for more of Christ. If Christ is of all surpassing worth, within knowing Christ must be our one all-consuming passion. And consider the short parables of the kingdom that Jesus tells in Matthew uh, 13. I'll just read them for you real quick. Jesus was amazing at how much he could pack into a short little uh, phrase and story. Uh, Matthew 13, 44 through 46, he's telling us what the kingdom is like. He says, the kingdom of heaven, uh, 819, if you want to turn there, uh, Matthew 13, 44. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, great worth, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's, that's what Paul's talking about. When you find something of surpassing worth, you pursue that thing with a surpassing passion. You find a treasure in a field, you do whatever you can to get that field and to get that treasure. Great worth deserves great pursuit. Are you willing to sell all that you have? Are you willing to suffer the loss of all things? If you can just gain this one thing, Jesus Christ. When we believe something is of great value, when there is something that we really love and desire, and we... We pursue it. Paul is showing us here that Christ is of infinite and eternal value. And God forgive us, then, that we do not passionately pursue the one who is both Savior and Lord. God forgive us for being more passionate about sports teams and, and TV shows and, and hamburgers. Right? Eternal matters matter more. But we so often don't live like it. We claim to believe in Jesus, but my question is, do we love him? And do we passionately pursue the one who has so sacrificially pursued us? Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's telling us that Christ is better than everything. That the love of Christ is better than everything. And so then let that fact motivate you to pursue the thing that Paul prays that you would know, to follow him, to seek after him, Paul says, by any means necessary. Listen, that means, first and foremost, that means, that means pray. Pray like Paul. I beg and beseech God to do this in you. Cry out with the Father in Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief. Confess your apathy, your own lack of passion, and ask him to fill you, to show you, to open your eyes to his goodness and grandness, to the glory and the grace, uh, to the brilliance and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And then look, stare, see, behold, and do that by reading and by hearing. And listen, if you want to know someone, you look at them and you listen to them. And if you love them and you value them, you don't stop looking at them and you don't stop listening to them. And the more you look and the more you listen, the more you know. And then the more you know, the more your love for that person grows. Imagine that with an infinitely perfect person. We look and we listen to Christ by looking and listening to his word. There's just no way around it. The passionate pursuit of Christ must include the passionate pursuit of his word. Because it is here that we find him. Which means that it is here that you can take very simple and practical steps to solve your apathy problem. Your lack of passion problem. Your, your failure to pursue problem. It's, it's read. And it's don't stop reading. 
Like, like Jacob, who wouldn't let go of the angel of the Lord until he would bless him. Don't stop reading until God grows within you a passionate desire and delight in Jesus. We somehow expect it'll just kind of come one day when God has told us how it comes. It comes through the means of grace. It comes through the reading of the word and the preaching of the word. Listen, if he is who he says he is and has done what he says he has done, then we must lay everything else aside. Everything else must decrease and he must increase. We must passionately pursue that which is of surpassing value. We must passionately pursue the one who has so sacrificially first pursued us, Jesus Christ. I get to... I'm privileged to get to return to Scotland in November and go preach at a church retreat there. So again, I've got all things Scottish on the brain. Uh, let me close us uh, with the words of the great Scottish preacher, uh, Robert Murray McShane. I love this quote. I'll read this and then we'll be done. Uh, listen to McShane and how he, how he concludes us. He says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself... Take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and rest in his almighty Arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Rejoice by knowing Christ Jesus your Lord. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for his beauty. For its richness, we thank you for its wisdom and for its depth. Father, we thank you that you have given it to us to show us Christ. You have given it to us to reveal to us how good you are, and you reveal to us how good you are, especially uh, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, capture now our hearts and our minds with him. Father, do what all my begging and pleading I cannot do. Father, do what only your spirit working through your word uh, can do. Grow in us a love and affection for Jesus Christ. I pray that by your spirit we would see him of surpassing worth. I pray that you would grow in us a desire and a surpassing passion to know him. Father, I pray that you would uh, consume us with an overwhelming desire and passion to then pursue him. Father, I pray that Woodside Community Church would be marked by a people who love Jesus Christ first and foremost, and who rest in that love, and who live in light of that love, and do everything they do out of that love first and foremost. Make the sum and substance of our Christianity and of our faith uh, Jesus Christ, and the great privilege and worth and value of knowing him. And we ask and we pray this in his name. Amen.